Our sermon today is taken from Psalm 2, 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus says the Lord. Good morning, friends. Uh, It's a privilege for me to bring God's word today for us and our Lord today, together today. right? And I think to see the growth that the Lord has been blessing us with, not only just in the number of the people that the Lord has been entrusting us with today at CCC, but I think just to see the relationships that are being built at CCC is very encouraging. Right? And it is worth remembering, it is worth praising God for what He's done and what He is doing in and through CCC. So for today, we are actually currently taking a break from our Gospel of John series. And for the next three weeks, we will be studying the book of Psalms. Right? Psalms just mean praises, or Psalms just mean songs. Uh, and just like us that use songs to guide our worship, right? the collection of Psalms have guided the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as to how to worship God and what does it mean for the people of God to be under God who is the one ruling over them. So if we explore fully the whole book of Psalms, just a little bit of context so that we can get an idea of what the Psalms are, you'll see that there are many different kinds of Psalms, right? We see Psalms of lament, we see Psalms of praise, we see Psalms of thanksgiving, which show us that Christian worship involves our whole range of emotions. Joy, lament, anger, sorrow, these are part of what it means for us to be the people of God as Christians, to worship God. And it dispels the idea that to be a Christian, you always have to be this happy-looking person, right? Rather, it communicates to us that in spite of our seasons of life that go up and down, the challenges that we face, right, the seasons that we go through, that we might face a lot of darkness, a lot of anxiety, a lot of questions, God is the one who remains faithful. God is the one who remains uh, in His covenant faithfulness through His people today. And today, we will be going through Psalm chapter 2, which is a royal psalm of David, right? And if we think about the word royal, we immediately think about kings, kings and queens, a powerful people of the highest authority in society. Sorry, guys, if there is a little bit of feedback from the microphone that might be distracting us, but the guys around it. Anyways. The psalm that we're actually dealing at today is a royal psalm talking about kings and queens, a powerful people in society. And we know that in this psalm, David is actually writing about himself historically, 
when he was anointed by God to be the king of Israel. From 1 Samuel 6 verse 13. And the job of the king of Israel is to rule the nation of Israel according to the laws of God. He is to rule with righteousness. He is to rule with peace and justice for the people. Now, of course, the ultimate king that is in view here is God himself. His rule, his authority, his right to be obeyed. However, as what we will see in the psalm today, we as people created by God, we deny his loving rule. We deny his right to be Lord of all. And we rebel against him, which is essentially what sin is, right? So how does this king deal with rebellious people? Is he to threaten them into submission? Is he to punish them all with his right? Or should he just ignore their sins and live a harmonious relationship with people who have rebelled against him? I pray that as we study this world psalm today, that our hearts, our wills, our minds would be realigned to what it means to be under his loving rule. Our hearts may adore the king so that we may see how he has dealt graciously and mercifully to his enemies. So we have four points today from the text. I know that that's a little bit unordinary for CCC to do, but I think the structure of the psalm lends us to see how there are four basic points uh, from the text today. And I think that's going to be easier for us to actually follow the psalm and see what the psalm is actually talking to us about God. And just before we get to point number one, let us pray again. Dear Father, we are grateful for this time that you've given us, that we may be able to listen to your word. Father, teach us what it means for us rebellious people who has rebelled against the holy God who has created this world, what it means for us to actually find refuge in this God, because there is no refuge from you. There is only refuge in you. So, Father, speak to us through your word today. Make us uh, adore you to be our king today, that we may worship you as your people, as your redeemer. Amen. Amen. Point number one, a rebellious people. One that we will see from verses 1 to 3. David begins his psalm by describing the Gentile nations who have rebelled against his kingship and rule. What did the Gentile nations have anything to do with David, the king of Israel? Right? That they are rebelling against David. And just, so, uh, just as context for us, Gentiles just mean people who are not part of the Israel nation. Right? Non-Israelites are the Gentiles. What do they have anything to do with David? Well, if we look back to the origin of the nation of Israel, right, the purpose of this nation was always to be a blessing to nations. And that's why Genesis 12 is quite significant here. It reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from this text, we can see that Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel, the great nation that was 
promise to him. Not only that, the nation was also called to be a blessing to other nations. In order, therefore, for this nation to not only be a great nation, but to be a blessing to all the nations, this nation must be ruled by a righteous and wise king. And in this context, in Psalm chapter 2, in the royal psalm of David, David was appointed to be the king of Israel, to be the blessing all the other nations that are that were surrounding the nation of Israel. Friends, when we think of wars, kingdoms, and kings, right, we might naturally think of ruthless tyrants who try to make their kingdoms bigger for their own sake. The biblical picture of Israel, David, that were called to subdue other nations, was not like the ruthless tyrant that we like to think about wars and kingdoms today. In the Old Testament, ruling other nations is of how God loves the world and how God uses the nation of Israel to, to, to also spread the blessing that God has blessed Israel with. And yet that's how the nation of Israel was going to bless the nations. It's not an invasion by a foreign king, but a gracious re-inclusion of the nations by the king of kings. But instead, throughout the history of Israel, even before they became a nation of their own, other countries have always been against them. And therefore, they are always against Yahweh, and they were always against his loving rule against King David. We know that Egypt enslaved them, Babylon attacked them, Edom despised them, and Syria even destroyed them. And here we see in the text, people, in the similar sense, are rebelling and resisting against the rule of David. Look at verse 1. The nations rage, and the nations plot in vain. They take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. We can see that this rebellion is one out of action. What's causing this deep hatred against God and his anointed if they were there to actually be a blessing unto them? And we see this in verse 3, the why of the rebellion. This is what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. Because beneath their rebellion is the cry, the God of Israel will bind us. We have to break this bond apart. He will restrain us with his cords. He will restrict us. We can no longer do the things that we want to do anymore. And it's just going to be rules after rules after rules. Friends, before we go more into the text, have you ever thought like that? That if I become a Christian, that if I, if we become under the rule of God, my life is just going to be restriction after restriction. And if I become a Christian, I won't be able to go late at night anymore, that I won't get my morning sleep on Sundays, that I won't be who I am anymore if I am bounded by these rules and commands of God and Scripture. And we are afraid that our life will be boring because we're forced to do the commands that we think will deny our happiness. Friends, if you're not a believer today, this could perhaps be the reason why you've been anxious about Christianity. 
you have friends who actually invite you to come to church, invite you to believe in this person called Jesus Christ, and yet in church on Sundays, you hear about Jesus Christ being there as king. Jesus Christ being there to rule over you. And deep down, you question that if I definitely choose to become a Christian, if I submit under the rule of this king named Jesus, I will be denied of my personal freedom. I will be denied of my joy. I might perhaps lose my sense of self if I become a Friends, this strategy used by Satan to lie to man is the same strategy used to turn humanity, to turn man from the creator in the garden. The first step is to make God sound like a tyrant more than a king. Remember Genesis 3, chapter 1, where the serpent said, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Any tree? He knew full well that the rule was just about one tree, not all the trees. But what did he make God sound like? Oh my, he won't let you eat of any of these trees? How could he? What a mean tyrant. Not only to make God sound like a tyrant, but the second step is to make God's motives sound selfish. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, will you, when you eat of the fruit that God had forbid you to eat. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at the heart of the lie there. Not only does Satan make God's commands sound more ridiculous than they are, but he is also making Eve think, Adam and Eve think, that God's motives of giving commands to them are selfish. He doesn't want you to be at his level. He wants you. He doesn't want you to enjoy being on top. He's just doing this to scare you for his own ego. Oh, is it so easy for us also to fall into this lie? Friends, the rebellion the nations had against King David in verses 1 and 3 that we just saw is a picture of the rebellion of humanity toward its maker. We are these people in verses 1 to 3. These are not just talking about people in the Old Testament who waged war against the nation of Israel, but we are also these people who have rebelled against our Creator. We may not directly be calling God a tyrant, but in times where we are most prone to disobedience, if we really reflect, if we really think, do we not try to make his laws also sound unreasonable? We may not be directly doubting that he is giving us commands because of his ego, but in times when we are most prone to disobedience, do we not often doubt his motive? Come on, Lord. It's been a long week. It's been a long week that I've been so good at this thing called being faithful to you. And now, you would deny me of this one pleasure? You really won't let me do that? How could you? I thought you are a God who understands me. I thought you were a God who loves me. Friends, at the end of the day, the nations were not convinced that obedience to Yahweh, that obedience to God was in their best interest. 
obedience to God's laws and rule wasn't what's best for them. This is why they cried. This is why they want to break free from their from the bonds of God. They want to free themselves from his cords or what Jeremiah calls yokes that are so restricting upon our freedom. Friends, this is a lie. This is a great lie that comes from the mouth of Satan. How do you officially get someone to rebel and disobey against their king? It's not by putting a gun in their head to disobey. But it is by convincing them that their king is a selfish and evil tyrant. And whenever we believe the Satan's lies, we technically will just follow whatever this lie is telling us to do. Satan no longer has to do anything, right? Because like in the garden, they just followed through with what they thought was Friends, to believe in this lie is foolishness. And the psalm continues, and we will see in the next section of our psalm, why is rebelling against God foolish? Let us go to our next Rebellion as foolishness, seen in verses 4 to 5. Look at verse 4. It says, He who sits in heaven's laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. What does this tell us about God as he looks upon people who rebel against him? God is not worried nor surprised when his creatures rebel against him. Rather, he looks at them in mock. He laughs when these people whom he had created rebelled against their own maker. And I think this lends us to a very important text in Romans chapter 1 verse 22 where it talks about sin as idolatry. Look at what it reads. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. How do they become fools? They become fools because they think that if they are free from the kingship of God, they will be finally free. But they're not. Why? Because we cannot not have a king. Think about this. When we make financial security our most important thing in life, then all we've done is make money our king. When we make career advancements, the end all be all, all we've done is make success our king. When we make marriage, our family, our children, our end all be all. All you've done, all we've done is make our family, our boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse to be your king. The back of our minds, we might say, hey, I don't make anything my king. I'm just following whatever I feel is right. I'll just follow what my passions tell me to do. Guess what? Then you have made, we have made our desires to be our king. Do you see, friends, that we cannot not have a king? If we reject, if we rebel the true king, we will end up creating our own king. We cannot live without someone or something ruling over us because we're scared 
we need something or someone to protect and lead us. It is by who we are in nature. We take good things and say, as long as I have this, I'm good, I'm safe. I have meaning in it. What God is trying to do here, what God is trying to communicate to us through this psalm is change the picture we have about His rule. His rule is not a tyrant that is trying to take away your freedom, but it's your rightful and loving King calling you back into His kingdom under His loving care. Out of our little kingdoms that we've made for ourselves. Those other false kings that might make you feel safe and demand more and more of you. But yet, these false kings never make you feel safe. They can never deliver what they promise. Let me ask you, those of us, if we truly look at the amount in our bank account, if we have reached our target, our goals, to have this sum of money that we want to achieve, do you truly feel safe? Is there anyone here that can truly say that if I look at, at my bank account, my future is safe? Well, let me ask you, who is in a dating relationship perhaps, not you who are in your first three months of your relationship because that's, you haven't seen the worst of the other person, right? But if you've seen the worst of the other person, would you really feel safe if that person became your ultimate king? Friends, because this drives our point of that we need the true king to come and rescue us from false kings. Because we are rebellious people who are foolish, for we worship kings who are never able to satisfy our deepest longings and our deepest needs. So let us go to the next section of our text and into our next point, our third point. A righteous king. Not only that God mocks at these people who have rebelled against him. But now, David, the psalmist, sets up that I have set my king, God said in verse 6. There is a king above all kings. There is the one true king who reigns. There is this one true king who is able to satisfy your needs. Who is this king? Well, we don't have a full full picture yet from this text, but apparently one day, if you look at verse 7, God will declare to this king that you are my son, that today I have begotten you. And in verse 8, this king will rule to the ends of the earth. And in the next verse, this king shall break them, false kings, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you think with the weight of what this king was about to do that this might refer to only King David? First of all, King David was also a sinful person. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. It cannot refer to David. Plus, God never said those words on him. Who then, friends, is the ultimate king that God has set up. Who is the righteous king? Well, friends, look at who was declared to be the Son of God by God the Father to fulfill the anticipation of the Anointed One in Psalm chapter 2. 
This is where I think these two texts are quite significant. First, from Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Revelation 19 verse 15 also anticipates what was expected from Psalm chapter 2. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is the greater David, the greater King, the ultimate King, the true King who will rule this world with truth, righteousness, and peace. Thinking about this psalm, redemptive historically, friend, it really puts the last line of the psalm into perspective, doesn't it? you look at the last line of the psalm, it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who's the him referring to? It's not King David, but Jesus, who is the greater David. There is only refuge in him and not from him. Because all the kings, all the false kings that we cling and trust in this world, anything besides God, that makes us think that we're living the good life, that gives us reasons to be able to find security in this life, will be crushed to pieces along with their worshipers when the true king comes with his rod of iron. This is where it gets uneasy, friend. If we've established so far that we are the rebellious people, verses 1 and 2, and we have seen that God mocks these rebellious people because they are foolish for rejecting God. And that there is this righteous king who will one day break and break to pieces all the false kings of this world along with their followers. Where does that leave us? Where do we find comfort? How do we find refuge in such a terrifying figure? Because I'm a sinner, I've made thought of God as a tyrant and selfish. If I've used the view that God is selfish and evil to justify my disobedience, and I have made other things in my life as ultimate kings in my life instead of Him, how can someone like me, how can someone like that, that is described in verses 1 to 3, find comfort and refuge in the Son who will break and dash sinners. Here leads us to our final point, submission as wisdom from verses 10 to 12. Therefore, in verse 10, we see a warning call for all of us. It says, Now therefore, O kings, sarcastically referring to us, who think that we can be king in this life. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Those who think that you are rulers of your own life. Those who think that you have life all figured out. Be warned. 
be wise. Which is in contrast to the warning to not be foolish like those in verses 1 and 3, right? If to, if to be foolish is to reject the king and only to worship false kings, saviors, and gods, then on the flip side, to be wise is to submit to this righteous, true king. And the wise man knows that the consequences of failing and doing these things is the wrath of God. Verses 11 and 12 continue this course by telling us what submission looks like. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Does this sound like a does this sound like it's a tyrant who is selfishly demanding us to serve him? It can. What do these words remind you of? when we're called to serve Him, when we're called to do all things for Him. We get flashes of these tyrant, evil, selfish tyrant who just wants us to be under His rule for His own sake and not for our sake. But no, friends, you see that finding refuge in Him is also rejoicing in Him and enjoying an intimate relationship with the King but how is that possible? And here is where we see the gospel in Psalm 2. That is only possible when we look at what the king has come to do and what he actually has accomplished. Matthew chapter 27, verse 28 and verse 37, we read the account of the crucifixion. And I think this is significant at how the crucifixion was depicted by Matthew. Look at the details that he put in this text. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And in verse 37, and over his head, they put the charge against him, which reads, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. My dear friends, do you see the gospel irony in this? There is an irony that we cannot miss, especially as we are trying to understand Psalm chapter 2. These people who crucified Jesus mock Jesus by crowning him with a crown of thorns when he truly deserves the crown of majesty. They mock Jesus for claiming to be the king of the Jews when he truly is indeed the king of the Jews. And they mock him by kneeling before him, laughing at him, when truly every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is the Lord of all the Is the picture of the cross truly the picture of a king depicted in Psalm 2? Friends, Jesus is our Savior King who has exercised His kingly authority not by banishing all men in His wrath, although He had the right to do so. But Jesus is our Savior King who has exercised His kingly authority by taking the full penalty of sin on Himself. Why is it wise to submit to this King and not to other kings? 
because he became kings by he became a king. He became the king by dying for you. To be your refuge, not by being a selfish tyrant, but to use his kingly authority that we may find refuge in him. Friends, as we reflect about this text today, he is the only king who comes to take our sinful place. No other false kings, earthly kings, do that. And as a result of what he's done, this is so that we may now be called his royal children. Because his righteousness, the righteous king, his righteousness has been given unto us. What does this tell us about his rule over his people? What does this tell us about his control over us? He wants to rule over us, not because he's a tyrant who is selfish, but because he is a king who is holy and is committed to Friends, this gives us perspective as to what it means to serve the king, to rejoice in the king, and to kiss the king. It is not by bringing our good works, it's not by bringing our daily performance of how well we have resisted our temptations. But we serve the king, we rejoice in the king, we kiss the king by looking at the true son of God who is now raised in power by his resurrection, who now rules in kingly authority, ruling for his people and not against us. Friends, who is Jesus to you today? Deep down in your heart, you feel like he is an evil king? An evil tyrant who just wants to control over your life for his own good? Or do you see today that he is our true king, a righteous king, who rules over our lives with his love, mercy, and grace? Friends, he rules over you not because he wants to make himself feel better about himself, but because he loves you. In spite of our failings, though we have rebelled, he has taken our place on that cross to die for us, that we may now be raised in Friends, if anything today, let us learn to trust him. Let us learn to trust in his laws, in trust in his command, that these things that God has set before us is for our good, because he loves us, because he knows us. In spite of our failings, he still chose to die for us. Blessed are those who find refuge in Jesus, the King. He knows your deepest sin, yet still he loves you because he has taken upon the wrath of God upon himself. And the wrath of God may no longer be upon us, but the love of God may be upon the church, those people who have been redeemed by Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you as these rebellious people. Father, if, if there's anything in our hearts that makes us think that we are not an enemy of you, or we were not an enemy of you, Father, make us see today that we were these people who have rebelled against you. We are these people who say deep in our hearts that we want to be our own God. And we forget and we are blinded 
from the fact that there is a true king, there is a righteous king who is there ready to punish evil and to punish sin. But Father, though we are still in our blindedness, though we are still in our rebellion, you sent your only son to exercise his kingly authority, not to banish us who deserve your wrath, but rather to exercise this kingly authority to take our place on that cross, take upon the wrath of God that were reserved for us, that we may now stand righteous, that we may now see how all, all these false kings that we are never able to satisfy our deepest longing. Now, Father, through your Spirit, make us worship you. Make us worship you as our King, knowing that we stand here righteous with the righteousness of the true King who has died for us, who has been resurrected, that we may now be resurrected in you. Father, may this be the song of our church. May this be the song of our hearts that we praise you, that all we have is you, that all that is all we need. Father, we pray all these.